Welcome to Clear and Present, a bi-weekly podcast of the Institute for Biodefense Research, where we bring subject matter experts to the fore to discuss their views and insights to current topics and issues at the interface of the biomedical sciences and technology, biosecurity, and biodefense. Welcome to this week's episode of Clear and Present. This week, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Diane Deulis. Dr. Deulis is a senior fellow and co-director of the Directorate and Center for Weapons of Mass Destruction at the National Defense University here in Washington, DC. Diane is a neuroscientist by training and works in the area of biological weaponology and chemical weapons as regards to international regulations, governance, and policy, and the capability of national security infrastructures to be able to address ongoing and emerging risks in this space. Prior to her position at National Defense University, Dr. Deulis was working in the Department of Health and Human Services. After a long and storied career in academia, again, as a neuroscientist and neuropharmacologist, as well, she serves as a senior advisor to the Strategic Multilayer Assessment Group of the Joint Staff of the Pentagon. Please welcome Dr. Diane Deulis. Thank you, Jim. It's really wonderful to be here, and I'm excited about our conversation today. There's so much that we can talk about um, that we have worked on over the past number of years. So thank you again for the kind invitation to speak with you today. Oh, my pleasure, and, and certainly a pleasure of our listening audience. So let me start if I could, if based upon a premise, and the premise is, is a presumption. Let's hold as a presumption that COVID or, or some iteration of the SARS-CoV virus is going to be a durable reality of our at least near-term, if not intermediate-term future. In other words, it's here with us to stay. So in this current COVID world, what did we learn from the way we handled COVID? In other words, what did we learn about the United States and its allies' preparedness, readiness, and responsivity in biosecurity? What a great question, Jim. And I think my first uh, reaction when you ask me that question is that first and foremost, I think that you know COVID-19 was not a failure of our imagination. Right? We have talked about uh, the possibilities of a pandemic outbreak for decades now, really. In the preparedness and response world, we have talked about what does it take to be prepared, uh, both in the uh, public health sector and in the defense sector. We've done exercises. We've looked at all of the pathogens, made lists of pathogens and attempted to make countermeasures to all those pathogens in order to be prepared. So COVID-19, our response to it was not, uh, you know, it's not as though this was unexpected, potentially. We kept thinking that this might happen. But then we have to look at, well, where, where might we have fallen short in our response and, and how were we unprepared? So my first, uh, thinking about that is that, um, and Jim, you and I have said this many times, we're always preparing for the last war, right? Um, and we were using all of the tools and capabilities to respond to COVID-19 that have been the same that we've used for many decades. So this goes towards our epidemiological models, 
our development of diagnostics, um, our development of medical countermeasures in some sense, right? Uh, and uh, what tools we had in the public health arena to really give the best response to COVID-19. And if you look at all of the advances in biotechnology that have happened over the past decade and our capability space there, how much could we have modernized our response platforms to give a better response to COVID-19? So that is one area that I think we're really going to have to work on in the future um, in terms of better diagnostics. We did a fairly decent job in putting out a novel type of vaccine in record time. So that's an example of what we could and should be doing. But we need to do that in all the other areas with biosurveillance, with epidemiological models, with diagnostics. How are we going to use potentially machine learning or AI to model pandemic spread? Uh, and how are we going to figure out better how to protect the most vulnerable at the same time as maintaining operations for everything else in our communities for those who are not vulnerable? And I think that was one of the biggest challenges of COVID-19 was to try and figure out how to do that. So just a couple of comments to get us started on this hey, topic. Oh, rich stuff. I mean, let me hinge on a couple of things you've said. And I think in many ways it can be congealed down to, we weren't necessarily caught with our pants down, but by the same token, I don't think we we're as tightly buckled up as we should have been. I mean, that's to say that you and I both had some interaction with the crimson contagion exercise as a desktop exercise and it was forward-looking to some extent right and it was also very collaborative i mean not only intranationally but internationally as well what can we do there i mean do you think that part of the answer or if not part of the problem is the relationships we have internationally with regard to openness for surveillance and discussions about biosecurity Wow, that's also a great uh, topic to cover in this space. Uh, if we look back to the outset of COVID-19, and as you know, and you and I have written about this, there, the origins of the pandemic may still be occluded, right? We, there is the strong evidence for the possibility that it emerged from a natural uh, zoonotic jump. There is also some speculative evidence that it could have emerged from a lab leak. And people are going to be trying to figure this out uh, uh, for a ways to come, I am sure. However, that said, regardless of the genesis of the outbreak, how soon really did people start becoming infected in Wuhan, China before the rest of the world knew about it? So in other words, Early warning is one of the best tools in our preparedness toolkit, right? The sooner we know that there is something bubbling up that is unusual or that we haven't seen before and that we need to learn a lot about so that we can be prepared to meet it um, if it if it spreads around the globe, uh, that forewarning is, is key. And so we have to question how well our international communications and openness in terms of global health security, how well that worked for us um, during COVID-19. We could have lost potentially months of time responding um, if we had known about this a little bit sooner.
Wow. But knowing about it also requires at least being told about it or having some venue, an opportunity, mm -hmm. or at least the latitude to surveil. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I know when you were working with ASPR, much of what you were putting forward in your portfolio and, and the drum that you were beating there in an OSTP was that we require better surveillance. And in some cases, mm -hmm. the necessary relationships with even our international peer competitors to allow that level of discourse. Is it possible? I mean, do you think in, in this ever more nationalistically vetted period of the 21st century that we're going to be open to that level of discourse and exchange? I certainly hope that we would be. And um, we had a number of venues for this type of thing to happen sort of collaboratively internationally, right? We have international health regulations. We have the WHO. We have a number of sort of international forums where this kind of collaborative setup can happen and be encouraged. But I will say one thing, and I think this was challenging during the pandemic, was once the world became affected by the pandemic, we saw, as you say, a lot of sort of nationalistic behavior, right? Should we, you know, close our borders to people from where there are high levels of infection in those countries. But also there was sort of global competition for very much needed medical supplies. And the United States in particular was in this position where we had to figure out where we were going to get medical supplies and discovered that in some cases we had only one supplier of very much needed medical supplies and that supplier was not here in the United States. And presumably other countries had this same challenge, you know, pressuring the same single source points for just the everyday needed supplies to meet the pandemic demand. So I think that, you know, those considerations go against this, you know, open and sharing and hopefully better biosurveillance uh, strategy that we are hoping for. Um, but at the same time, as we, as we try to recover from this thing, I think this is exactly the, one of the areas that we need to, to hone in on and emphasize how much better we could have done um, if, if we had had this kind of open biosurveillance community. So, I mean, certainly we could take a look at what types of intranational responses we had and beg the question of, were we ready? Are we prepared? But I think there's another side of that coin. I mean, the world was watching. And again, we, we could discuss almost ad nauseum whether or not the SARS-CoV virus itself had any form of, of synthetic aspect to it. Was it a lab leak? Was it not? Are there elements from this that might be taken forward? But I think at this point, it's, it's mood. What we saw was here was a virus, and it affected a worldwide response, in some cases positively, in other cases negatively. The impact was huge. But now we're dealing with the age of synthetic biology, of, of gene editing. So it's not just a question of could something like this be done? Certainly it could. What are the lessons learned here for a potential peer competitor or adversary in terms of what those vulnerabilities may reveal? Yeah, so uh, my, my thoughts on this are sort of in, in two 
big spheres, right, of, of what our adversaries have learned about our response. And, and one of those big buckets is wholly on the uh, uh, sort of non-kinetic side, right? So uh, in addition to the outbreak itself, the pandemic itself, we had these downstream effects. We've had the depression of our economy because of lockdowns. We've had social instabilities. We've had, uh, as the pandemic wore on and people began to uh, lose some faith in our public health institutions and their ability to get the pandemic under control, we could see a lack of trust in those, in those public health institutions. So an adversary may very well want to cause some of those things, economic instability, social instability, or generating a lack of faith in our public health institutions um, by simply threatening um, or even, even putting out disinformation about uh, a, a potential pandemic outbreak and, and generate those things. On the other side of it, as you say, there are so many tools now in the biotechnology uh, uh, arena that someone could use to explore um, uh, gen the, the creation of a pandemic. And so one, I'll, uh, let's just throw one out there. Uh, could someone create uh, a pathogen that appeared to have a zoonotic jump? Could someone create that? They've had the perfect example of this current situation in COVID-19 to say, well, gee, we could perpetrate something and we could make it look like a zoonotic jump and no one will know who the perpetrator was. Is that possible with today's modern biotechnology tools? So we could go on down that, that, down that uh, pathway there and talk more about it. But um, those are some of the first things that come to my mind that we need to be concerned about. Those are the concerns. What should we do? I mean, I'll be ready. Yeah, I think that the good the good side of this, right, and the and the side of upside positivity um, that I would like to focus on is our our adversaries have seen our vulnerabilities, and so have we, and so we can take positive, actionable steps to uh, shore up all of these vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Step one, let's modernize our biosecurity preparedness and response platforms. Let's bring all of our biotechnological tools and capabilities with regard to biosurveillance and uh, diagnostics, medical countermeasures. Let's bring all of those up to speed. When we do those exercises, let's start exercising for economic outcomes and social instability outcomes, not just health outcomes, right? We can take those steps. And then we can also take steps to do something that, Jim, you and I have sort of thrown around this idea of biosecurity by design. As we look at the growing tool set of emerging biotechnologies, things like CRISPR gene editing, and so many of the other, you know, synthetic DNA, and the ability to create things with synthetic DNA. As we look at that, and as we know, many of these experiments are in the uh, interest of public health and public good and all the preparedness and response I just talked about. How about we 
instill biosecurity by design. All of those experiments, all of those laboratory endeavors should start with a risk benefit assessment so that you can explore the risk ahead of time before the experiment is done and then build in safety and security and mitigations as they are needed. So it's not a panacea, but certainly those are the directions I would hope we could go to uh, address these vulnerabilities in the near future. Diane, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. In fact, it's such a pleasure and there's just so much more to talk about. This has been the first of a series of two of our discussions together. Join us for our next discussion when we'll probe a little more deeply into some of the issues of biosecurity and biosecurity by design and, and what that portends and comports for the current global stage, issues of biodefense and public health in light of recent developments with data transfer, the ubiquity of information and emerging conditions as regards to pandemics, diseases, and perhaps the use of synthetic biology. So once again, Dr. Diane Deulis, thank you so much for being with us. And I look forward to our next conversation. Special thanks to our guests this week and to you, our listening audience. Subscribe to your favorite podcast channel to join us next time for another episode of Clear and Present.